0: Abiding in Emptiness. The Buddha talked about abiding in a state in which his mind was empty. Both he and Sariputta said they often abided in emptiness. Of course, the Buddha and Sariputta were abiding in emptiness as fully enlightened beings. Tonight, I'll explore abiding in a state of emptiness by those of us who aren't yet fully enlightened. Experiencing this kind of abiding may provide us with a taste of an awakened mind, a refuge for difficult emotions, an insight into full awakening. Also, abiding in emptiness can provide us with a way of experiencing ourselves as processes, as verbs, instead of solid entities. I've heard teachers and meditators talk about abiding in emptiness with a mind not yet fully awakened using different names, like open awareness, empty awareness, awareness of awareness, formless awareness. And in other traditions than Theravadan, it may be similar to Rigpa and Mahamudra in the Tibetan Buddhism tradition. And perhaps silent illumination or resting in the unborn or Shikantaza, in Zen Buddhism. In Joseph Goldstein's book, One Dharma, Joseph talks about the different ways different traditions speak about enlightenment. And specifically, he talked about two traditions in the Theravadan, and one in Zen, and one in Tibetan Buddhism. Three of these four describe an awakened mind, as a consciousness that is empty. Similar to abiding in emptiness or awareness of awareness. In one of the Theravadan schools, the Burmese tradition, um, which is the path that Sharon, Jack, and Joseph brought over to the United States, in the 70s, in the Burmese tradition, momentary cessation of consciousness is the goal, which is a path moment for one of the stages of awakening following the Vasudi Magas path of purification. So that's in the Burmese tradition. It's, it's more of a transcendent uh, moment of cessation of consciousness. But in the other three traditions, it's a little different. In the Thai forest tradition, for example, which is Theravadan, the ultimate goal for an awakened mind is a knowing consciousness empty of a sense of self. So an empty consciousness. It is abiding in the ease and peace of pure awareness with a mind unaffected by greed, hatred, and delusion. So I'm talking about fully awakened or uh, in this case, a fully awakened mind. In the Korean Zen tradition, it acknowledges a third type of awakened consciousness in which the fundamental empty nature of awareness is recognized. This recognition is sometimes called sudden awakening, awakening, gradual cultivation in this Zen tradition. Gradual cultivation is necessary because the consciousness of awakening is only a momentary recognition of empty awareness, and further work is needed to uproot greed, hatred, and delusion. And then in the Dzogchen tradition of Tibetan Buddhism, the goal is realizing a consciousness that has a space-like knowing quality to it, is empty of a sense of self, and is compassionate. So these are four different awakened states that Joseph talks about in his book, One Dharma. How can these four different descriptions of an awakened mind be reconciled, or can they? Does enlightenment transcend awareness, like the cessation of consciousness path moment taught in the Burmese Theravadan tradition? Or is enlightenment pure awareness itself, as taught in the Thai Theravadan tradition, the Korean Zen and Tibetan Zokchen traditions. In Joseph's book, One Dharma, he answers this question about how they can be reconciled by saying these four descriptions of an awakened mind may be different aspects of the same goal. Enlightenment is both transcendence of awareness and empty awareness itself. I wanted to share these four descriptions of nibbana in these four different traditions because the last three mention an empty mind, abiding in which is the focus of this talk. We don't often hear much about the empty nature of an awakened mind in the Burmese school of, of Theravadan, which, as I said, is the tradition most of us have been exposed to. There are two suttas in the Pali canon that explicitly talk about emptiness. One is the shorter discourse on emptiness, and the other, the longer. Both are in the middle-length discourses. In the shorter discourse, Majjhima Nikaya 121, the Buddha describes the process for learning how to abide in emptiness as a gradual process. During the process, one notices in one's field of perception objects that are present in the mind and also notices that the mind is empty of objects not present. And as the objects in the field of perception become fewer and fewer and more subtle, the mind has less and less disturbance. And as a result, the mind becomes more and more empty. So in the 1900s and uh, 1990s and 2000s, I received similar instructions from Rodney Smith, a Theravadan teacher schooled in the Thai forest tradition of Theravadan Buddhism. Rodney has written several books about abiding in a type of emptiness he calls formless awareness. When he was a monk... In Thailand in the 1970s, he lived at Buddha Dasa's monastery, where Buddha Dasa taught empty awareness. And Buddha Dasa's book, Heartwood of the Bodhi Tree, was the only Theravadan book on emptiness for a very long time. In it, he said that abiding with an empty mind is a protection against every kind of suffering, danger, and misfortune. During many of the 15 or so week-long retreats I attended with Rodney, the instruction was to use mindfulness of breath as an anchor and each day to add mindfulness of a sense object into the field of perception. The first day was just the breath. The second day we added body sensation. The third day we added sound to body sensation in the breath. The fourth, emotions to everything. And the fifth, thought. As you can see, the objects got a little more subtle day by day. Object by object, I would check in with each of them, notice whether there were any disturbances from them, and if so, the instruction was just to be present to the disturbance until it left, but if the mind was empty of a disturbance of a particular object, I noticed the emptiness of the disturbance and returned to the breath. Towards the end of these retreats, my mind became fairly quiet, fairly concentrated, and fairly empty. There was very little perception or conceptualization going on. About ten years after my last retreat with Rodney, I met an American zokchen master and teacher named Rudy Bauer in around 2011 who lives and practices and has a Tibetan temple of sorts in Washington, D.C. Rudy has a Tibetan, uh, he has a Tibetan temple of sorts, and he invites many Tibetan Dzogchen masters to come teach there. I had the very good fortune of sitting with Rudy for about a year, and we discovered that he and I were abiding in similar states of emptiness, even though I had received no Dzogchen training, and he had received no Theravadan training. As I mentioned, the instructions Rodney gave me during the retreats I attended with him years before that more or less track the instructions in the shorter discourse on emptiness in the Majjhima Nikaya. The Sutta relates that the Buddha and his Sangha were living in Savati in the palace of Magara's mother. And one evening, Ananda rose from his meditation, went to the Buddha, and asked him whether Ananda had heard the Buddha correctly on a previous occasion when the Buddha said he often abided in emptiness. And here is Ananda's question. Venerable Sir, on one occasion I heard and learned this from the Blessed One's own lips. Now, Ananda, I often abide in emptiness. "'Did I hear that correctly, Venerable Sir? "'Did I learn that correctly? "'Did I attend to that correctly? "'Did I remember that correctly?' And the Buddha replied, "'Certainly, Ananda, you heard that correctly, "'learned that correctly, "'correctly attended to that correctly, "'remembered that correctly. "'As formerly, Ananda, "'so now, too, I often abide in emptiness.'" And then the Buddha proceeded to describe for Ananda the gradual process for abiding in emptiness. Now, in a footnote to this discourse, Bhikkhu Bodhi says in his translation of it that according to the commentaries, the Buddha's abiding in emptiness is a fruit of attainment of full awakening. A deliverance of mind only an arhat attains by focusing on the empty aspect of nirvana. But I respectfully disagree with the commentaries on this. I don't think the Buddha um, described the process for abiding in emptiness to Ananda, uh, who was not fully awakened at the time, if it was not possible for Ananda to experience abiding in emptiness. Further towards the end of the sutta, The Buddha says that upon following the instructions in the sutta uh, and gaining an insight into the not-self nature of abiding in emptiness, one can become fully enlightened. Well, this is an insight someone fully um, enlightened wouldn't need. So I think just by virtue of those instructions being in the sutta, it's designed for folks who aren't fully enlightened, like Ananda. And finally, at the conclusion of the sutta, the Buddha recommended to Ananda that he train himself to enter and abide in emptiness, something he couldn't do if abiding in emptiness was a practice reserved only for fully enlightened beings. So I read this sutta as a guide, for non-arhants, non-fully enlightened beings, to experience abiding in emptiness. The gradual process the Buddha describes in the sutta instructs one to attend to a series of objects one by one, from more gross to more subtle, and also to attend to any disturbance in the mind dependent on them. Additionally, the Buddha instructs one to understand and regard the mind as empty of objects when they disappear. The Buddha begins with a simple instruction by having Ananda first notice the emptiness and the non-emptiness in the palace where the Buddha and his monks were living. In other words, he noticing that the palace was empty of certain things but not empty of other things, like the Sangha of Bhikkhus who were living there. And this is what the Buddha instructed. Ananda, this palace of Magara's mother is empty of elephants, cattle, horses, and mares, gold and silver, and an assembly of men and women. There is present in this palace only this non-emptiness, namely the Sangha of Bhikkhus. Then, by using that same faculty of observation of noticing emptiness and non-emptiness in the palace, the Buddha compared Magara's palace to one's field of perception. He said that with the appearance and then disappearance from one's field of perception of, say, a village and people in it, After their disappearance, one would understand and regard the mind as empty of the village and people, and any disturbance in the mind dependent on them. But with the subsequent appearance of, say, a forest in one's field of perception, one would then attend to the non-emptiness of the forest in the field of perception, plus any disturbance based on that. So here's what the sutta says. One no longer attending to the perception of a village, no longer attending to the perception of people in the village, one attends only to the perception of forest that is now in one's field of perception. One's mind enters into that perception of forest and acquires confidence in it. One understands whatever disturbances there might have been dependent on the perception of the village, or the people in it, those are no longer present here. There is present only this amount of disturbance, namely the perception of the forest. And then it repeats, there is only present this non-emptiness, namely the perception of the forest. Thus, one regards one's mind as empty of what is not there, but as to what remains, one understands what is present. And, then, and thus, Ananda, he goes on to say, this is the genuine, undistorted, pure descent into emptiness by noticing what's there and what's not there. The Buddha then says, with the di- disappearance of the forest, one would understand and regard one's field of perception as empty of the forest, and any disturbance dependent on that, but one would attend to the non-emptiness in one's field of perception of, say, the perception of earth, now in one's field of perception, and any disturbance based on that. Again, Ananda, one would not attend to the perception of forest in one's field of perception. Rather, one would attend to the perception, because the forest is gone, and one would now attend to the perception of earth. One understands thus, whatever disturbances there might be, dependent on the perception of forest. Those aren't here. Um, There is present only this amount of disturbance, namely the perception of earth. And one understands this field of perception is empty of the perception of forest. There is present only this non-emptiness, the perception of earth. And uh, says this is the pure, genuine, undistorted descent into emptiness. And then the Buddha said, With the disappearance of the earth, one would regard one's field of perception as as empty of earth and any disturbance dependent on that. But one would attend to the non-emptiness now in one's field of perception, namely the sphere of infinite spaciousness and any disturbance in the mind dependent on that. And so there's a quote about that. And then the Buddha said, with the subsequent disappearance of the sphere of infinite spaciousness from one's field of perception, one would regard and understand one's field of perception as empty of that, but one would attend to the non-emptiness now in one's field of perception of the sphere of infinite consciousness. All right. So, with the subsequent disappearance of infinite consciousness... Um, one would understand the mind as empty of that, but would attend to the next thing, which is the sphere of no-thingness or nothingness, and with the subsequent disappearance of the sphere of no-thingness, one would understand and regard one's field of perception empty of that, but uh, attend to the non-emptiness now of neither perception nor non-perception. So the objects being attended to, on the gradual way to abiding in emptiness, get more and more subtle, from the Sangha in Magara's mother's palace, to the village and the people in it, to the forest and earth, and then progressively, even more and more subtle, arupa states, from infinite spaciousness to neither perception nor non-perception. By including the rupajanas in this progression, it doesn't mean that one must experience them in order to abide in emptiness any more than one must experience what is present in Magara's mother's palace to abide in emptiness. The Buddha used the very subtle disturbance in the mind from the arupajanas to show how refined one's attention needs to be in order to notice the emptiness in it and any disturbances from them. Of course, having a concentrated mind at some level helps to notice the emptiness in the mind. The sutta continues with two pivotal chapters. The first says that with the disappearance from one's field of perception, the sphere of neither perception nor non-perception, one would then attend and enter into a signless concentration of mind. A signless concentration of mind is one in which there is present in one's field of perception only a modicum of disturbance connected with the sense bases without involvement in the sense objects. In other words, one with a signless concentration of mind, one isn't paying attention to the signs of the object, objects at the sense doors which we talked about this morning with regard to guarding the sense doors. So as one is on this gradual descent into emptiness, if one can get one's mind empty enough of the objects and disturbances, as they get more and more subtle, one enters into a signless concentration of mind where one doesn't pay attention to the signs of the objects of the sense doors the signs of an object tell you what the object is. The aggregate of perception typically gets very involved in the signs of objects in order to label them. With signless concentration, however, the ears hear a sound, but the mind is not trying to discern its source. Or there's a painful sensation in the body, but the mind is not trying to figure out what it is. Or the mind thinks a thought, but there's no effort to discern its import or meaning. Very little, if any, perceiving or conceptualizing is occurring in a signless concentration of mind. So the Buddha says, regarding this, Ananda, one not attending to the perception of the sphere of neither perception nor non-perception, attends to the silent concentration of mind and acquires confidence in it. One understands thus, whatever disturbance there might be dependent on the perception of the sphere of neither perception nor non-perception, that is not present here. There is present only this amount of disturbance, namely, that connected with the six sense bases without paying attention to the signs of the objects at the doors. The second pivotal chapter, which is the next one, says that at this point, one's mind would become fully liberated upon, fully liberated, not the first stage of liberation, all four. One's mind would become fully liberated upon having an insight into the not-self nature of a signless concentration of mind. In other words, a signless concentration of mind is conditioned and impermanent and an insight into that could be a springboard into full awakening. The Buddha says, One's mind enters into that signless concentration of mind and acquires confidence. One understands thus. This signless concentration of mind is conditional and fully and volitionally produced. But whatever is conditioned and volitionally produced is impermanent, subject to cessation. When one knows and sees thus, One's mind is liberated from the taint of sensual desire, from the taint of becoming, from the taint of ignorance. When it is liberated, there comes the knowledge it is liberated. One understands birth is destroyed. The holy life has been lived. What had to be done has been done. There is no more coming to any state of being. So this insight into the not self-nature of an empty, signless concentration of mind, harkens back to Nagarjuna's saying that dependent origination is emptiness, and that very emptiness itself is dependently originated, which is the middle way. The Buddha concludes the discourse, uh, which is the shorter one on emptiness that I've been reading, by saying that a now fully awakened being would regard as present in the field of perception only that amount of disturbance dependent on the sixth sense basis without greed, hatred, or aversion. So after you go through all that and get fully awakened, you still regard as present in your field of perception disturbances dependent on the sixth sense basis but without greed, hatred, or delusion. Let's shift gears now and talk about the other discourse on emptiness, the longer one. It's in Majjhima Nikaya 122. In this sutta, the Buddha describes abiding in emptiness internally and externally. So what does that mean? Well, with regard to abiding in emptiness internally, um... He says, there is this abiding discovered by a Tathagata, a Buddha, to enter and abide in emptiness internally by giving no attention to all signs. And then he gives a brief description on how to enter emptiness internally, which is much briefer than the shorter discourse on emptiness that I just talked about. Uh, He said, to enter and abide in emptiness internally, one should steady one's mind internally, quiet it, bring it to singleness, and concentrate it. And how does one steady one's mind internally, quiet, and bring it to singleness and concentrate it? Here, Ananda, quite secluded from sense pleasures, secluded from unwholesome mind states, one enters upon and abides in the first jhana, the second jhana, the third jhana, the fourth jhana which has neither pain nor pleasure and purity of mindfulness due to equanimity. That is how one steadies his mind internally, quiets it, brings it to singleness, and concentrates it. And then he gives his attention to emptiness internally. So basically, the instruction for abiding in emptiness in the longer discourse is to concentrate the mind and incline it towards emptiness. This short instruction for abiding in emptiness internally, might be speaking to those already practiced with the longer instruction in the other discourse. After giving the instruction for abiding in emptiness internally, the Buddha then talked about abiding in emptiness externally, which I think is a more advanced practice. In fact, I think this Sutta is giving instructions to more advanced practitioners of, of abiding in emptiness. But here's the uh, abiding in oh uh, abiding in emptiness externally, which is abiding in emptiness while walking, talking, and thinking. Here's what he said. In addition to giving attention to emptiness internally, one also gives attention to emptiness externally. One gives attention to emptiness both internally and externally, so simultaneously, and then he describes how to do it. When one is abiding in emptiness internally, if the mind inclines to walking, one walks, thinking, while I am walking thus, no evil, unwholesome states of covetousness and grief uh, will beset me. Basically, greed and aversion. And then he goes on to talk about talking. He says, when one is abiding in emptiness internally, if one's mind inclines to talking, one talks. Resolving that low, vulgar, coarse, ignoble, unbeneficial talk that does not lead to disenchantment or dispassion or to nibbana, is not uttered. So while abiding in emptiness and talking, one speaks only right speech. And then he goes on to talk about how to do it regarding thinking. When one is abiding in emptiness internally... And these are in walking, talking, and thinking are all external abidings in emptiness. So, and the, th- the third one is thinking. When one is abiding internally in emptiness, if one's if one's mind inclines to thinking, one thinks, resolving such thoughts that are low, vulgar, coarse, ignoble, unbeneficial, and which do not lead to disenchantment, dispassion, and nibbana that is, thoughts of sensual desire, thoughts of ill will, and thoughts of cruelty, such thoughts I will not think. So, if abiding in emptiness internally is a practice available to you, you might want to see if you can walk, talk, or think while abiding in emptiness. And if abiding in emptiness is not yet a practice available to you, go on retreat with some teachers who are teaching it now, like Sopni Rimpoche, Heather Sunberg, Guy Armstrong, and me, I'm teaching. Uh, I've just started teaching abiding in emptiness retreats. A couple of years ago, I attended an emptiness retreat with Guy Armstrong, and during one of Guy's talks, he said he often abides in emptiness while attending meetings where a lot of conflict arises. So he's doing the internal and the external abiding of emptiness. He said that abiding in emptiness is a good refuge. He also said that the field of abiding in empty awareness is huge, it's vast. It's big enough to hold the most difficult of emotions. And then he added, it may be the only thing that can hold difficult emotions in the long run. Several months before attending that retreat with Guy, I had an experience of just what he was talking about. I knew exactly what he meant when I heard it. It was about a year and a half after my son Justin's death. Um, I was on a retreat for a month at the Forest Refuge in Barrie, Massachusetts. And of course, I was still grieving. It had only been a year and a half. But, and I found that I could be with my grief in two vastly different ways. In one, I grieved from a place that brought more dukkha to myself. Um, in that place, I overlaid my grief with a lot of mental activity. A lot of downstream mental vedna that conditioned a lot of thinking. The mental activity included thoughts like, why did this have to happen? I should have died first. How am I going to live the rest of my life walking on this earth without my oldest son? It was a place in which the downstream unpleasant vedana went unnoticed. All right. In the place in which there was little or no dukkha, I found that I was able to hold my grief in a place of empty awareness or open awareness without mental activity. All that was present was the fact of my son's death and the unpleasant vedana about it. It's just that it wasn't unnoticed. It was very noticed. I was very mindful of this unpleasant vedana. The grief got as big as it wanted to get which definitely was unpleasant, but there was no aversion to it. My empty awareness was vast and always bigger than the grief, even though the grief was bigger than anything i had ever experienced. There was absolutely no demand in that place of empty awareness holding the grief that things be any different than the way they were there were no thoughts at all there was just the fact of my son's death my grief and unpleasant vedna it was healing and it was purifying and it had long lasting effects to be with my grief in that way in this field of abiding in emptiness externally With thought and emotion. Sense contact and Vedana are known, but one doesn't get involved with the objects in a way that leads to mental proliferation, papancha, thoughts and more thoughts. Guy Armstrong describes meditative emptiness as a quality of mind that does not alter. Deny or project onto or elaborate upon the reality of what is. Nagarjuna said as much when he said that the realization of emptiness stops the mind's proliferation. We're no longer sending the mind out towards anything. We're abiding in what... Upasaka Ki, a 20th century laywoman teacher in Thailand, called, and I love this, the unentangled knowing. It's knowing objects, including thought and emotions, without getting tangled up in them. It's being present to the unpleasant vedana of our lives without aversion. This is the instruction to Bahia, isn't it? In the scene, just let there be the scene. In the herd, the herd. In the sensed, in the body, just the sensed. In the cognized, in the mind, just the thoughts or emotions. This is how you should train yourself, Bahia. At the end of the Bahia Sutta, the Buddha described the mind of a fully enlightened arhat as a mind in which the four elements of earth, air, fire, and water gain no footing. The mind of an arhat is described as a mind in which the four elements gain no footing. They gain no foothold. Well, as you know from your four elements practice earlier in the course, the four elements refer to an impersonal way of looking at this being and the being of others. One's being or the being of others may arise in the mind of a Buddha, but they gain no footing. An enlightened mind doesn't get overly involved. There's a sutta in the Diganikaya at number 11, which is the Kevata Sutta. And the Buddha was asked, in what kind of mind do the four elements cease? And the Buddha said, that's the wrong question. The right question is not where the four elements cease. It's where they gain no footing. How do we not get involved with the objects of our mind. In an inspired utterance at the end of the Kavitasutta, the Buddha described the consciousness of an enlightened mind as one where the four elements find no footing. He said, This type of consciousness, and I love the description, is without surface, is featureless and signless. In other words, there is no place for the signs of objects to land. You just don't get involved with the signs of objects. It's boundless, so it's without surface. It's boundless, limitless, like space, without form or edge. And it's luminous all around. This luminosity might be the knowing quality that illuminates what the mind is conscious of. According to what Joseph Goldstein taught, which I'll get to in a minute. All right, so that's a an enlightened mind without surface, boundless and luminous all around, has this knowing quality. In another sutta in the Samyutta Nikaya, the Buddha described an Arhant's consciousness in a similar way, just as if there was a roofed house or a roofed hall. Having windows on the north side, on the south side, and on the east side. When the sun rises in the east in the morning and a ray has entered the house or the hall by way of the window, where does it land? The ray of sunshine. And the bhikkhu answered, on the western wall, Lord. And if there is no western wall, where does the ray land? On the ground, Lord. And if there is no ground, where does the ray land? On the water, Lord. And if there is no water, where does it land? It does not land, Lord. In the same way the Buddha said, where there is no craving, then consciousness does not land there or increase. Where consciousness does not land or increase, there is no alighting of Nama Rupa. And where there is no alighting of Nama Rupa, there's no growth of mental fabrications. And where there's no growth of mental fabrications, there's no production of renewed becoming in the future. And where there's no production of renewed becoming in the future, there's no future birth, aging, and death, and that, I tell you, has no sorrow, affliction, or despair. In the same way, where there is no craving, then consciousness does not land, does not increase. All right, during my month long at the Forest Refuge, Joseph Goldstein was the teacher. And at that retreat, Joseph was saying that it would be the last of his teaching career. I'm not sure if that wound up being true, but during that month, we all thought that was his last retreat, and we felt pretty darn fortunate to be on it with him. He gave four Dharma talks during their retreat, and his last one was about, as you might imagine, the nature of an awakened mind. To convey his teaching on the nature of an awakened mind, he followed a teaching by a Tibetan monk and scholar named Shabkar, who lived in the 1800s. Shabkar had described the mind's primordial nature, or awakened nature, as a vivid, flawless piece of crystal, with three characteristics, intrinsically empty, naturally radiant, and ceaselessly responsive. And so I'll just talk about these briefly. Shabkar's description, um, by the way, of an awakened mind is the same description that Joseph used in his book on one Dharma that I spoke of earlier to explain the awakened mind in the Zokchen tradition. This description sounds a lot like the kind of consciousness the Buddha was describing at the end of the Kevata Sutta, one that is signless, boundless, and luminous all around. But anyway, Joseph explained that Shabkar's first characteristic of intrinsic emptiness is a mind empty of a sense of a permanent self. He said this entails a gradual understanding of not-self together with an empty space-like nature of the mind that is vast, like the spacious sky. This sounds a lot like the kind of emptiness the Buddha talked about abiding in in the shorter discourse on emptiness, one in which objects of perception are gradually removed so there is less and less perception going on. At the emptiness retreat I attended with Guy, he also described the empty awareness as spacious and he also said it also has an accommodating quality to it which allows for the most difficult of emotions this accommodation regarding shabkar's second characteristic of mind which is that it is naturally radiant joseph said this is the knowing or aware quality of the mind it's cognizing power and this natural radiance is similar to the description in the Kevata Sutta, which speaks of the mind's luminosity. Joseph said these two qualities of the awakened mind, its spacious and empty, emptiness and knowingness, are inseparable. Space-like nature, its empty nature, and its knowing nature are inseparable. He said if objects arise in the mind... They are known, but held lightly. The empty nature of phenomena is being known by the empty nature of mind. As the Buddha said in the Kevata and Bahiya Suttas, objects don't get a footing. And as the Buddha told Bahia, in the scene, let there just be the scene, without getting tangled up into the objects of sight, sounds, and thoughts. This is Upasika Key's untangled knowing. All right, so Shabkar's third characteristic of mind, of one that's awakened, is that it's ceaselessly responsive, which refers, Joseph said, to its natural compassionate response to the world. And as we've discussed, compassion occurs from the relative perspective. Joseph said that as we move out of self-centeredness and into emptiness, we have a spontaneous, compassionate response to our own suffering and the suffering of others. And Joseph said that Shabkar's description of the awakened mind as empty, radiant, and responsive beautifully expresses the integration of the relative and the emptiness I love a quote by Joseph which says, At a certain point in my practice, I realized that compassion and wisdom are not polarities, but expressions of one another. So that is a description of the kind of mind one can abide in. A mind that is vast like space, empty of self, with a knowing quality that is aware of objects but doesn't get entangled in them, and one that is ceaselessly responsive with compassion. All right, so in conclusion, while our minds may not yet be fully enlightened, we may have periodic access to a spacious, empty, aware mind as we progress along the path. A taste of nibbana, if you will. And it can be cultivated to be more stable and last longer with a concentrated mind. So you just get the mind concentrated, incline it towards emptiness. That was the Buddha's instruction in the longer discourse abiding in this empty awareness can also be an amazingly valuable refuge for difficult emotions. It can be a springboard for full awakening through insight into the not-self nature of this signless concentration of mind. And it can be a way to experience ourselves as processes and the objects of our mind as processes. If a sense of a permanent sense of self is still hanging around, which will be true if greed and aversion haven't quite been uprooted, it just means the mind is not yet fully awake. But that fact, does not preclude a taste of what it'll be like, which can be a great spur for progress along the path. Okay. So can we just have a moment of silence? Thank you for listening.